0: This is Chapter Eleven of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Volume Two, Book Three, Chapter Eleven The Court Reorganized for Assassination. A halt was called. It was time. Cochon was losing ground in the fight. Joan was gaining it. There were signs that here and there in the court a judge was being softened toward Joan by her courage, her presence of mind, her fortitude, her constancy, her piety, her simplicity and candor, her manifest purity, the nobility of her character, her fine intelligence, and the good brave fight she was making, all friendless and alone, against unfair odds, and there was grave room for fear that this softening process— would spread further and presently bring cochon's plans in danger something must be done and it was done cochon was not distinguished for compassion but he now gave proof that he had it in his character he thought it a pity to subject so many judges to the prostrating fatigues of this trial when it could be conducted plenty well enough by a handful of them oh gentle judge but he did not remember to modify the fatigues for the little captive. He would let all the judges but a handful go, but he would select the handful himself, and he did. He chose tigers. If a lamb or two got in, it was an oversight, not intention, and he knew what to do with the lambs when discovered. He called a small council now, and during five days they sifted the huge bulk of answers thus far gathered from Joan. They winnowed it of all chaff, all useless matter, that is, all matter favorable to Joan. They saved up all matter which could be twisted to her hurt, and out of this they constructed a basis for a new trial which should have the semblance of a continuation of the old one—another change. It was plain that the public trial had wrought damage. Its proceedings had been discussed all over the town, and had moved many to pity the abused prisoner. There should be no more of that— THE SITTINGS SHOULD BE SECRET HEREAFTER, AND NO SPECTATORS ADMITTED. SO NOEL COULD COME NO MORE. I SENT THIS NEWS TO HIM. I HAD NOT THE HEART TO CARRY IT MYSELF. I WOULD GIVE THE PAIN A CHANCE TO MODIFY BEFORE I SHOULD SEE HIM IN THE EVENING. ON THE 10TH OF MARCH THE SECRET TRIAL BEGAN. A WEEK HAD PASSED SINCE I HAD SEEN JOAN. HER APPEARANCE GAVE ME A GREAT SHOCK. SHE LOOKED TIRED AND WEAK. SHE WAS LISTLESS AND FAR AWAY and her answers showed that she was dazed, and not able to keep perfect run of all that was done and said. Another court would not have taken advantage of her state, seeing that her life was at stake here, but would have adjourned and spared her. Did this one? No! It worried her for hours, and with a glad and eager ferocity, making all it could out of this great chance, the first one it had had she was tortured into confusing herself concerning the sign which had been given the king, and the next day this was continued hour after hour. As a result she made partial revealments of particulars forbidden by her voices, and seemed to me to state as facts things which were but allegories and visions mixed with facts. The third day she was brighter and looked less worn. She was almost her normal self again, and did her work well, many attempts were made to beguile her into saying indiscreet things but she saw the purpose in view and answered with tact and wisdom do you know if saint catherine and saint marguerite hate the english they love whom our lord loves and hate whom he hates does god hate the english of the love or the hatred of god toward the english i know nothing Then she spoke up with the old martial ring in her voice, and the old audacity in her words, and added, "'But I know this, that God will send victory to the French, and that all the English will be flung out of France by the dead ones.' "'Was God on the side of the English when they were prosperous in France?' "'I do not know if God hates the French, but I think that He allowed them to be chastised for their sins.' it was a sufficiently naive way to account for a chastisement which had now strung out for ninety-six years but nobody found fault with it there was nobody there who would not punish a sinner ninety-six years if he could nor anybody there who would ever dream of such a thing as the lord's being any shade less stringent than men have you ever embraced st marguerite and st catherine yes both of them The evil face of Cochon betrayed satisfaction when she said that. "'When you hung garlands upon la Brèfe Bourlemont, did you do it in honor of your apparitions?' "'No.' "'Satisfaction again. No doubt Cochon would take it for granted that she hung them there out of sinful love for the fairies. "'When the saints appeared to you, did you bow? Did you make reverence? Did you kneel?' "'Yes.' I did them the most honor and reverence that I could. A good point for Cochon, if he could eventually make it appear that these were no saints to whom she had done reverence, but devils in disguise. Now there was the matter of Jones keeping her supernatural commerce a secret from her parents. Much might be made of that. In fact, particular emphasis had been given to it in a private remark written in the margin of the procès. She concealed her visions from her parents, and from every one. Possibly this disloyalty to her parents might itself be the sign of the satanic source of her mission. Do you think it was right to go away to the wars without getting your parents' leave? It is written one must honor his father and his mother. I have obeyed them in all things but that, and for that I have begged their forgiveness in a letter, and gotten it." ah you asked their pardon so you knew you were guilty of sin in going without their leave joan was stirred her eyes flashed and she exclaimed i was commanded of god and it was right to go if i had had a hundred fathers and mothers and been a king's daughter to boot i would have gone did you never ask your voices if you might tell your parents they were willing that i should tell them but I would not for anything have given my parents that pain. To the minds of the questioners this headstrong conduct savoured of pride. That sort of pride would move one to see sacrilegious adorations. Did not your voices call you daughter of God? Joan answered with simplicity and unsuspiciously, Yes, before the siege of Orléans, and since they have several times called me daughter of God.' Further indications of pride and vanity were sought. What horse were you riding when you were captured? Who gave it you? The king. You had other things, riches, of the king? For myself I had horses and arms, and money to pay the service in my household. Had you not a treasury? Yes, ten or twelve thousand crowns. Then she said with naivete, It was not a great sum to carry on a war with. You have it yet?' No, it is the king's money. My brothers hold it for him. What were the arms which you left as an offering in the church of Saint-Denis? My suit of silver mail and a sword. Did you put them there in order that they might be adored? No. It was but an act of devotion, and it is the custom of men of war, who have been wounded, to make such offering there. I had been wounded before Paris— nothing appealed to these stony hearts those dull imaginations not even this pretty picture so simply drawn of the wounded girl soldier hanging her toy harness there in a curious companionship with the grim and dusty iron mail of the historic defenders of france no there was nothing in it for them nothing unless evil and injury for that innocent creature could be gotten out of it somehow WHICH AIDED MOST, YOU THE STANDARD, OR THE STANDARD, YOU? WHETHER IT WAS THE STANDARD, OR WHETHER IT WAS I, IS NOTHING. THE VICTORIES CAME FROM GOD. BUT DID YOU BASE YOUR HOPES OF VICTORY IN YOURSELF, OR IN YOUR STANDARD? IN NEITHER, IN GOD, AND NOT OTHERWISE. WAS NOT YOUR STANDARD WAVED AROUND THE KING'S HEAD AT THE CORONATION? NO, IT WAS NOT why was it that your standard had place at the crowning of the king in the cathedral of Reims rather than those of the other captains? Then, soft and low, came that touching speech which will live as long as language lives, and pass into all tongues, and move all gentle hearts, wheresoever it shall come, down to the latest day. It had borne the burden, it had earned the honor. Footnote number one, what she said has been many times translated but never with success there is a haunting pathos about the original which eludes all efforts to convey it into our tongue it is as subtle as an odor and escapes in the transmission her words were these il avait été a la peine c'était bien raison qu'il fût a l'honneur monsieur ricard honorary vicar-general to the archbishop of aix finally speaks of it Jeanne d'Arc, La Venerable, page one ninety seven, as that sublime reply, enduring in the history of celebrated sayings like the cry of a French and Christian soul wounded unto death in its patriotism and its faith. Translator, end of note number one. It had borne the burden, it had earned the honor. How simple it is and how beautiful and how it beggars the studied eloquence of the masters of oratory. Eloquence was a native gift of Joan of Arc. It came from her lips without effort and without preparation. Her words were as sublime as her deeds, as sublime as her character. They had their source in a great heart, and were coined in a great brain. End of chapter 11